Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. I'm very pleased to say that we can welcome in New York, in our studio, Steve Eisman, famous, of course, for his successful bet against subprime mortgages, featured in a book you all know well, Michael Lewis's book, The Big Short, and now a portfolio manager at Newberger Berman Group. Steve, good morning to you, sir, and thank you very much for joining us. Glad to be here. I was looking at your Oxford Union appearance, which I'm sure was an honour, and I want to start with that. And the quote is as follows. If you had gone and said to executives pre-crisis, the entire paradigm of your career is wrong, the response was, listen, kid, I made $50 million last year. What did you make? What's different between now and then? Uh, There's there's a lot lot different. Um, You know, I would say that the... The gestalt, if I could use that word, on Bloomberg, um, <coughs> of the regulatory world. Is that legal? Is Rich can pre-crisis. Say that I think he can gestalt. say that. Can he can say that, right? Pre-crisis that- was, um, we trust you by the regulators, and so essentially we had it in a world that had the trappings of regulation, but in reality we had a completely deregulated financial services sector, and today the difference is that. The industry is extremely heavily regulated, and even though there's, there's going to be a major change in the Trump administration, it's still going to be a very heavily regulated industry. Something you've said is that leverage made people look like they were geniuses. Yes. Is that happening now? Um, it's too early. Um, you're going to see leverage go up, and returns are going to go up, and so firms are going to feel better, and they'll think they're they'll they'll think they're a lot smarter. Yeah. But it's you know it's just math. You know, the more leverage you can put on, the more, the higher your ROE. Well, Steve, it raises the question, you say it's too early. A lot of people trying to work out where in the cycle we actually are. Do you see any signs of late cycle behavior? No, I don't. I really don't. I I look for them every day. Yeah. Uh, Credit quality is still superior. In fact, some areas that people were concerned about, like me, they've gotten better. You know, subprime auto, credit quality seems to have started to get a little bit better. Credit card industry which saw some higher delinquencies and higher losses i think those are going to start to go down so the answer to that question is no how forensic are you being at the moment steve i mean many people know you as the person that really undressed and stripped back these collateralized debt obligations and looked at how messy some of these individual things actually were are you getting that forensic at the moment are you still that forensic in your day-to-day work i'm always forensic yeah. i go through securitization data every single month that's that's kind of like my bible and there are just no signs of stress. There aren't. So when people talk about the books for subprime autos and they're saying the debt loads are piling up there, there's something to worry about in student they loans. They could say whatever they not? want, but uh, we'll come to student loans in a second. Please but, do. Uh, you know, with respect to everything else other than student loans, the credit data is excellent. Yeah. Steve Eisman with us on what is going up. Talk about a vector from the lower left to the upper right. Student loans. How do you get forensic on student loans? Um, well, let's make something very clear. The student loan problem is not a financial services sector problem. It's not a systemic problem. Yeah. It's a United States government problem. Most 95% of all student loans in the United States are government guaranteed. So 
you know, whatever problems show up, that's a taxpayer problem. That is a problem that's going to be dispersed throughout the U.S. economy, but it is not a, a financial system systemic issue. Is it a problem for the next generation, Steve, or is it a problem we need to get ready to deal with imminently? Um, it's a problem that exists right now. You know, um, I, it's terrible that people graduate from college and, and grad school with as much debt as they have. It affects the housing market to a, certainly a significant degree. It affects people for the rest of their lives. I, I think the current system of the way we finance higher education is appalling. How would you change it? <laughs> well, that's a long story. I mean, look, I make. I think there's. We need to make community colleges, if not free, at least heavily subsidized by the government. A lot of state universities should be much more heavily subsidized. I mean, what people pay for education is is, is ridiculous. I have two. I have twin girls who are in school right now. The, what it costs to to go to university is insane. Within that. Is uh, within the debate on education and financing is also education is the underpinning for the future of America. That has to fold into investment. Are the kids today, the people, you know, I'm going to say 35 and under, where they've really not known anything except post-crisis nominal rates and such, are they as educated about volatility as, as they should oh, be? Oh, absolutely Mike? not. Yeah, I mean, I, they, they there's an entire it. generation of people who now work on Wall Street who have have no idea what volatility is. How do we teach it to them? Just experience? It's That's called, it. It's called yeah, enjoying school losing. School of hard knocks. <clears throat> well, it's it's called watching the bid walk away. And we don't really haven't seen that in a while. No, we have not. We haven't seen that in a very, very long time. Do you see any opportunities in the equity market? Or do you stay you know, far more fixed on fixed income and debt instruments? Oh, I don't do anything in fixed income. I don't see I don't see much of opportunities in fixed income until rates stop going up. I think all the opportunities are in the equity markets, long and short. Okay, what do you what? Give us some categories of longs right now that you find attractive. Does that fold over to banks? Uh, my biggest capital allocation is financials mostly banks. My second largest capital allocation is tech. Um, and my shorts are, well, we could talk about that. <laughs> well, I imagine most people, um, that's the first thing they ask you, Steve. What are you sure? Well, my shorts, <laughs> I mean, I've been public about this. Um, the only bank that I'm short is Wells Fargo. Give me the uh, why. Um, I think Wells Fargo is going, obviously is going through a torrential change in its culture. You know, Wells Fargo historically has been a bank that out-earns on an ROE and ROA basis other banks. And given the regulatory environment for Wells Fargo, the change in the culture, um, Wells Fargo is just going to become a normal bank in terms of its profitability. Shouldn't and a normal bank perform well in this environment, though, in the United States? Not when it can't grow. Interesting. And they are not allowed to grow. And, you know, the CEO after the Fed capped them about yeah. two weeks ago, got on a conference call and said this was only going to impact their earnings by about 2 to 4%. I don't know how he could have said that because no no bank that I know of has had the regulators cap their assets when the bank is healthy. So it's impossible to know uh, what that's going to mean. But Steve, let me be clear here. Did you put the short on before the Federal Reserve made that move or afterwards? Uh, I put the short on last summer. Interesting. Very, very early well, on then. Well, it was after the scandal had obviously broken, yeah. but before the regulators really did anything. 
Let's do this. Someone's either calling. It's either Sunderland calling John Farrell. About it's probably my, it's probably my wife. I it's, hope it's, it's Sunderland football. It's club. one of your kids. It's no, it's, I think too. it's my wife. It's her. It's her tone. <laughs> there it is. That's that's her tone. Mrs. Eisman, uh, he'll be with you uh, in a moment. Steve Eisman with us, and we will continue. Thrilled that all of you of Global Wall Street are listening this morning to uh, Mr. Eisman. Jerome Schneider with us now of PIMCO. So look at short-term paper. And by short, we mean short. I want you to explain to the retail audience why pros look at one-year, six-month, and three-month paper. Well, quite honestly, you know, <clears throat> when you look at the uh, front end of the T-bill curve, a couple things have happened. We've had over $500 billion of new T-bill supply come onto the market, uh, $250 billion over the past month alone. Uh, in, in this year projected, which is a profound amount just simply because we have to absorb it. Well, why is, why is that important? Was there a problem in absorbing it? Well, it, there, there is actually has been actually a dearth of, uh, of paper in that short-term space. And, and as a result, front-end yields have been anemic for many years. So one of the profound things, uh, Tom, is that you know, we finally have the one-year T-bill rate above 2%. So it's actually pretty interesting. The entire flat, entire curve, as we all point to, the twos-tens curve has you know, moved from you know, 100 basis points to 80 basis points to the low, low 40s or mid-40s to back about 60 basis points. That's one aspect of it. But just recognize the fact that front-end yields have actually increased and that flatness has actually allowed some savers, at least in part, to participate in that upward drift of yields and to incorporate them. So T-bills, yeah. uh, short-term bond funds, things like that that can really adapt to uh, the higher yields and, and embrace them have actually been beneficiaries of this uh, rising rate environment. Jerome, I just want to frame what's happening in the United States of America at the moment because I think it's really important for savers. At the moment, deposit beta, the jargon, incredibly low. What that basically means is that the Federal Reserve interest rates are going up and the banks aren't pace, passing it on to their deposit base. Now, I'm trying to understand why everyone doesn't know about the fact that one-month T-bills are now 1.5% and why we haven't got this flood of deposits coming from these banks into T-bills. Why isn't that happening? Why aren't people waking up to the fact that you can now get 1.5% in a one-month T-bill when you are getting basis points well, what from was your the, bank account? Well, what was the last time a bank said to you, hey, I actually want to pay more? They're not going to tell you. Right. So let's just put the logic behind this. Banks don't necessarily want to pay more for deposits than they want to. Similarly, there's been structural changes. Over the past few years, we've seen a astounding response to money market fund reform, a story that's more than five years old, happened in 2016. But as rates have increased during this rate hiking cycle, yields in money market funds have remained rather anemic, meaning they haven't recalibrated as high as benchmark rates. Still, the average money market fund yields about 1.3% after fees, which is pretty small. Deposits at the same time, while they've beta has actually increased slightly. It hasn't as increased to the point that we've seen in previous rate hiking cycles. So long story short is savers are earning a little bit more than they did probably a year or two ago, but yeah. not much more. So the key to success in capital preservation, the key to success in earning income, and the key to success in avoiding volatility in overall portfolios is finding ways that can adapt and embrace to earn those higher yields. One-year T-bills are one way to do it, still fairly conservative in that regard, but we can actually look to points of the yield curve in the front end, the zero to two-year space specifically in zero to two-year corporates, which are relatively safe, offer yields of about 2.5 to 3% in some cases, and have benefited actually from a structural widening that we've seen in spreads 
over the past four weeks or so. So I'm going to pull a page from the 2008 playbook, Please do. if you will. So LIBOR OIS, the LIBOR versus the spread of overnight index swaps, which is repo effectively, or, or FUD funds rate effectively, has moved from basically 10 basis points at the end of last year, that spread, to about 40 basis points. In 2008, we'd have been saying, holy cow, this is a systemic event. Yep. Let's pay attention to it. Now, we were actually saying there's really no systemic issue here. We would have heard about it from Jerome Powell, who loves to talk about regulation and systemic <laughs> issues. But the reality is, is that that's not necessarily the case right now. So okay. it's an opportunity. So we we actually published a blog piece yesterday on PIMCO.com. To, it applies to this point, but it's really recognized that this is an opportunity to embrace these higher yields, higher spreads in the front of the curve, propelled by, as you mentioned, higher yields and T-bills and things like that, uh, Tom. But at the same time, Look, let's look at the entire composition and recognize that the entire yield curve is relatively flat and take advantage of it. John, I'm, I'm tearing up. What are you at? Wait, <laughs> you can hear it Literally. on the radio. What's I'm wrong? Up. Liber OAS, we haven't mentioned it. For, it for was over like a, de for a decade. <laughs> it was like gospel over a decade ago. Yeah. I've just brought up the chart from a decade ago and I'll freshen it up. And for Bloomberg Radio, you'll see it first. I, I can't talk, John. You have to. So, so my question, like, Jerome. Does, wait, wait, wait. Does anybody care about LIBOR OIS anymore? <laughs> you care. You care if you are a saver and want to embrace these higher yields and find ways that have capital preservation and utilize this okay. structural widening to do that. That's why you care. Excuse me. Thanks. So, so I'm allowed to, I'm allowed Don't to sound the alarm and break, and break the firebox <clears throat> yet. So, so Jerome, as you speak to the other portfolio managers at PIMCO, are you seeing a situation evolve where short rates start to compete for capital elsewhere in things like investment grade, in well, things like high yield? Is that happening? Well, what you actually see is that um, we no longer are, are the uh, of the opinion that front-end rates are undervalued, let's say. So at this point in time, two-year notes at right around 2.26 is pretty well fair-valued for at least three rate hikes over this year and, and so forth and, and so on. The risk to us that we think is that the propensity that we have additional hikes that the market has now been put on guard for, in part by Powell's testimony yesterday, of what happens in 2019 and 20 and beyond. And so if you see continued growth, things that are in the five-year, the 10-year sector, perhaps are a little bit underpriced or grossly mispriced if you see actually growth and further tightenings that need to occur over that horizon. So that's really the debate at this point in time. In terms of crowding out, it really becomes in terms of what's your target horizon, what's your, what's your notion for volatility. Again, all volatilities in fixed income actually are resoundingly uh, low compared to what we've seen in equities and things like that. And the response function, even to Powell's testimony yesterday in, in rates volatility yeah. getting wonkish was was none basically so we have to basically view it as as not necessarily crowding out but really trying to find utilize the front end as a way to meet objective just for sheer sheer optionality and more importantly flexibility for the future people who want to incorporate the front end are utilizing as a holding place for reducing volatility and flexibility for future allocations they might want to other assets as they recalibrate you mentioned chairman powell do you think he was overly optimistic in his first semi-annual testimony? No, I think he was trying to be balanced, actually. What he was doing was flexing his muscle to demonstrate that he has that optionality, the same optionality that that you know that Yellen had or Bernanke had and everything else. But at the same time, uh, recognize the fact that he is a voice of one at this point in time and hasn't had a proper caucus to represent everybody and <clears throat> seeing the SCP dots as they evolved. I just took the average of LIBOR OIS through the crisis back when I was quoting it every 12 minutes. Thank you, uh, folks, for those that listened uh, long ago and far away, the average LIBOR OIS spread was 0.85. We're nowhere near that. No, nowhere near that. 
as we move towards that, does Jerome Snyder start paying attention more? I, I doubt we'll move toward that. I just think it's it's just worth highlighting that that there's been a pretty dramatic jump since the end of the year. Um, and it's something worthy to take advantage of. And again, the reasons are very different, Tom, this time around. Right. That's the key point is the milieu is different. What's the key confidence maker as we see LIBOR OIS go from dead flat up to 0.4033? Confidence maker is that we don't see any structural weakness in the financial system at this time around. It's simply a recalibration of understanding where the financing costs and the ability to under the ability to obtain financing within the markets is, is what the critical is. So we've spent an inordinate amount of time over the past few weeks, me and my and the short-term desk team at, at PIMCO. And and when you talk to the participants, whether they're domestic banks, Yankee exactly. banks, they, exactly. they all sort of point the finger at different things. And so there's probably 20 different variables, no matter what periodical you say, no matter what they point it to, whether they say, is this bank needs funding or it's it's the weakness in the dollar or it's you know, the people, Japanese year end or, or whatever the okay. excuse is. The point is, is that all these things are coming together and there is no single weakness per se that we say. Is, in two, this is critical, running out of time. In 2018, is LIBOR OIS the litmus paper that commercial paper used to be ages ago? Uh, it, they're very related and we're going to see funding spreads widen specifically with regard to some uh, financial institutions as a result. But don't lose sleep over it. Look to utilize it as an opportunity at this point in time because the fundamental right. situation is entirely different than 2008. John, was that in English? Yeah, it was. I think you did a great job. It was brilliant. Well done. Well done. I, I, this is You're great. You're going to put the chart I, out on Twitter. I'm going to put the chart out. Bloomberg Radio will see it first. I think we have to start closing Cyber OIS. Charts like, on radio. I didn't mean to bring, bring out an old book, but uh, actually, what's sick is John. I was wearing this bow tie in 2008. I can actually when I believe that. Honestly, Cyber I, I can believe that. So can Jerome. Jerome Schneider, thank you as always for the clinic on uh, a blast from the past. Cyber OIS. We need to talk China, and we do that, of course, with Ambassador Haas of the Council on Foreign Relations. He has a luxury of a terrific China team, including Elizabeth Economy. His even greater luxury is to have a book review from John Farrow. John, you are raving about Richard Haas, A World in Disarray. Well, I just have to say, for anyone that hasn't read A World in Disarray, if you, even if you have a deep knowledge of foreign policy, it will add something to your life. And even if you don't, in fact, particularly if you don't, it will give you the back history for some really important topics topics that we explore at the moment, whether it's North Korea, China, etc. So please do pick it up and, and give it a read. And I'm really pleased to say that Richard Haas joins us now. Um, Richard, it's always great to catch up with you and get your insight. Once again, China front and centre. Can we just take a step back and get your thoughts on the idea that it's President Xi forever? First of all, thank you uh, for that generous introduction. Look, the news from China on one level isn't surprising. Given the anti-corruption campaign, the amount of enemies that President Xi has made, the idea that he would one way or another keep effective power after his second term ended in five years, we kind of figured that would happen. There was a precedent for that. When Deng Xiaoping stepped down, he, he basically was the power behind the scene through the, the this funny title in the Bridge Association. I used to kid that I thought Xi Jinping would become the first violin in the People's Orchestra. What surprised me was that it was done now with five years to go in his second term. Term, and it was done so explicitly and done through the idea of changing or just ignoring the constitutional 
uh, term limit. And that suggests to me that this is a preemptive strike. This is a preemptive strike by Xi Jinping that he's sending the message. He's not just yeah. going to be there for five years. He's going to be there for 10, 15, whatever. And it also says to me that there must be significant domestic pushback that he felt the need to do this preemptively. Ambassador Haas, we had the honor of not only of you today, but speaking with Stephen Singh out of Oxford with the University of London uh, in their, um, the SOAS China Institute as well. And he spoke of the nuances domestically, but also abroad. Was this a preemptive strike against theories such as Ross Navarro? Uh, I think it's much more to do with domestic. That's the Chinese priority. It's, look, Tom, take a step back. The fact that you have this thing called the Communist Party, it's this layer of governance between the citizenry, the economy on one hand, and the government on the other. It's, it's what, 90 million people who are members of the Communist Party. This whole thing is an artificial construct. It says to me the Chinese leadership does not take for granted as a given the cohesion of the country politically, socially, even territorially. What I think this suggests is a tougher line on Taiwan, uh, on other issues that would be seen to threaten the integrity of Chinese territory a continuing crackdown on dissent, greater role in overseeing the quote-unquote private uh, sector, yeah. possibly a slightly more nationalist line in their in their foreign policy behavior. Just in terms of the relationship between the United States and China at the moment, there is a conversation at the moment about tariffs being introduced. There is also a conversation from the Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin that maybe the President of the United States is keen to return and have a look at TPP once again. Would you like to see more of the latter instead of the former to address the economic power of China? Well, absolutely. The United States decision in the first week of this presidency to get out of TPP made no sense economically. It made no sense strategically. And it was basically a nice, you know, wrapped gift, among others, for China. China has any number of initiatives from One Belt, One Road to the Infrastructure uh, Investment Bank. This is, uh, this, it, this is a, a signature error on the part of this administration. And if they're willing to revisit it and basically say, look, we'd be prepared to go into TPP if there were some changes made, ultimately, it's not only good for the, our trading partners, we want China to yeah. be integrated in the region, but on our terms, we want a race to the top. Right not a race to the bottom. Richard House, many say you should be in the White House. You should be assisting at state. Are we anywhere removed from the loyalty president, or is it business as usual for uh, the selecting of people to serve America? Uh, gee, Tom, I thought you were a friend before that question. Uh, no, I think that's the larger issue that the Jared Kushner issue raises. That this administration has not availed itself of so much as experienced talent. And whether it's getting rid of people at the State Department or, or essentially saying any Republican hand who signed any of these letters critical of candidate mm-hmm. Bush, it's like original sin and you can't get over it. That, that to me makes no sense. Given the inbox they inherited, yeah. given the inbox they've now created, they need the best and the brightest, and they simply don't have it. Richard Haas, the president of the Council on Foreign Relations and the author of A Must Read, A World in Disarray. It's fantastic to catch up with you, Richard. We always appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Tom, this issue of China and the United States certainly not going away. I think this week's actually quite important because yes. there is going to be a key representative of the president of China meeting with some key representatives on the economic side of uh, President Donald Trump. And I think it's really interesting that throwing into the mix, they've opened the door once again to TPP. And let me be clear, when they pulled away from TPP, the happiest people in the room were China. 
going to get right to it quickly here. Not much market response. So far, 10-year yield comes in a basis point. Mike Mayo with us uh, with Wells Fargo. Are you enjoying Wells Fargo? I'm having a great time. Yeah. You brought in here, this is one of these TV things, folks. It sounds great on radio. Take two. You went to the J.P. Morgan investors meeting yesterday, and you say scene three for Mr. Diamond is scale. What did you, what did you learn about scale yesterday in Fortress Diamond? Well, if we had to sum up the annual investor day by J.P. Morgan, which was yesterday at their headquarters, it would be, we are J.P. Morgan, hear us roar. I mean, J.P. Morgan is expanding in with bankers and branches and bots and in new markets and in capital markets and investment banking. And they said they will defend their turf. Jamie Dimon, the CEO, said if there's upstarts, new competitors, they'll spend a billion dollars. They'll spend five billion dollars. They'll spend whatever it takes <clears throat> to preserve the long term franchise value. Is the long term profitability there or is that confidence from a one off of tax legislation? We forecast J.P. Morgan's earnings to increase by 50% over the next three years. So this is more than just the benefits from taxes. We see this as a 25-year uh, progress from national banking that was first allowed in the mid-1990s. You're seeing the benefits of scale more than ever before in the banking industry, and J.P. Morgan is showing some of that. What did you ask them at the Investor Day? Well, my question was, uh, you know, the sun's shining, you're happy, you're building a new 70-story skyscraper, yep. replacing your headquarters. Basically, is this the sign of a top? And what did they say? Uh, they said they'll do whatever it takes for the long-term health of the company. Jamie Dimon, the CEO, said, to be frank, he doesn't want to change his office. He doesn't want to move. Uh, and they are in, in locations, 14 other locations you know, around the city. So it, it probably will become more efficient. But you have to ask the question. You've been around the street a long time. Is this the most confident you've seen J.P. Morgan since the crisis? I think this is the most confident I've ever seen J.P. Morgan. So back to that director's uh, board that Tom. Be clear here, even before the crisis, is this, this is the this most is confident you've seen them full stop period. Absolutely. I mean, before... J.P. Morgan bought Bank One and Jamie Dimon. This was a hodgepodge of what we called money center banks. Remember Chase and Chemical and Manny Handy and legacy J.P. Morgan. Then uh, Jamie Dimon uh, took over uh, J.P. Morgan and built up J.P. Morgan through the financial crisis. But now you're seeing the benefits of scale without the distraction of system integrations, a financial crisis, new regulation. So you're seeing these benefits more than ever before, both in retail banking and in capital mm -hmm. markets. It really was you know, quite amazing. And that's why we had to ask the question, you know, what makes you nervous? Right. Mike Mayo, take four. Is that all you wanted to do? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> being, we're being cinema guy. We got. Oh, them. Tom, you're killing me this morning. That was lucky. brilliant. I Let's thank you. I had no idea what you were doing. Mike Mayo, is the optimism justified from what you see? And what are the risks that this tax bill, to Tom's point, that this tax bill just gets competed away? Uh, well, that's a great question. Uh, first of all, um, we see both structural and cyclical benefits to the banking industry. The balance sheets and J.P. Morgan's balance sheet is the strongest that it's been in a generation. Um, in addition, you have the benefits of the, the tax reductions, which certainly help the banking industry. And some of that money will be put to employees, some to communities, but some to shareholders and the bottom line. Uh, what happened to your interest rate you know, at the start of the year? 
nothing if you if you have a loan. So it takes yeah. a few years for this to be competed but, away. It will be passed on gradually, but okay. not at the start here. Where are the other J.P. Morgans? You are a harsh critic of governance at Bank of America. There's all the challenges at your bank, which I know you're not going to speak about. But across regional banks, across two big banks, to the single word that matters on this, Mike Mayo, take five, scale. Where's the scale going to be for everybody besides J.P. Morgan? Well, that's a big question. That's a message that came out from the conference yesterday. Tom, as you know, I've covered the banking industry for 30 years. We've done a lot of research on J.P. Morgan. But walking out of that room yesterday, it, it tilted the debate more in J.P. Morgan's favor. When you're talking about a, a new fintech startup, you're talking about a, a, a mid-sized bank dethroning J.P. Morgan, they're saying... It's not so easy. We have big data. We have computer power. They increased their technology spending by 15% to $11 billion every year. How do the smaller players compete yeah. against that? So it is a question about more consolidation in the banking okay. industry is to You're come. You're predicting that. Definitely. Okay, Mike Mayo, Wells Fargo, thank you so much. Uh, John, I'm completely depressed. Mike Mayo and I, like at the beginning a million years ago when he yeah. was like nobody in the industry, we're like, who the hell is this kid at CSFB? <laughs> and the problem is 30 years on, John Tucker, I look like a fossil. And 30 years on, Mike Mayo's cut and chiseled. Mike, Mike Mayo's looks still like looking he's good. 39. He's still looking good and he's still going around with props. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to him taking that prop from Bloomberg Radio to Bloomberg TV. <laughs> Epilogue, Mike Mayo. <laughs> Okay. Mike Mayo with a target of 130 on JP Morgan. 130 with a stock already at an all time high of 117 ish. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.